Hey, this is Dave DeCamp from AntiWar.com. This is Anti-War News for Wednesday, July 5th, 2023. All right, the first story at the top of AntiWar.com today. Russia says that the U.S. was complicit in a drone attack on Moscow. So the Russian foreign ministry said Tuesday that Ukrainian drone attacks on Moscow and other areas inside Russia would not be possible without support from the U.S. and NATO. The comments came after there was a drone attack on Moscow. The Russian military said that it downed five drones and there were no casualties reported. So the Russian foreign ministry said, quote, These attacks would not be possible without the help provided to the Kiev regime by the U.S. and its NATO allies. Russia claims that the U.S. and NATO were training drone operators and providing the necessary intelligence for the drone attack. So it's not clear if the U.S. and NATO are enabling drone attacks inside Russia, but there are signs that the Western powers are involved. Following drone attacks on Russian air bases in December 2022, Asia Times reported, citing military sources in NATO countries, that the drones used U.S. satellite GPS data to hit their targets. Um, and there's other signs of you know the U.S. being complicit in attacks on Russia. Of course, we know U.S. military equipment has been used in attacks on Russian territory, despite Ukrainian assurances that they wouldn't be used. There was a cross-border attack in Russia's Belgrade region that was launched on May 22nd using U.S. armored vehicles and NATO rifles. And one of those groups, the Russian Volunteer Corps, you know, is openly neo-Nazi, white nationalist. You know, so a group of Nazis attacked Russia with American weapons. At least that one time that we know of, there's been a lot of these raids. I'm sure that there's been some other U.S. or NATO equipment mixed in there. Um, So, you know, it's not exactly clear how involved the U.S. is with these uh, drone attacks. You know, we don't know if the Russian claims are true. But again, there's that reporting. And, you know, I have a hunch that the U.S. probably is uh, helping them out to some extent here or other Western countries, other Western intelligence agencies, maybe. And the New York Times reported last month that the Biden administration is no longer concerned about Ukrainian Ukrainian attacks inside Russia escalating the war. So that signals that if the U.S. might have been discouraging Ukraine not to do these types of attacks before, that they're not doing that anymore. Uh, The administration previously worried that such operations could lead to a Russian attack on NATO, but they stopped worrying about it. Uh, you know, and basically the attitude is the philosophy in the Biden administration is, oh, Putin hasn't used the nuke yet. He hasn't attacked a NATO base in Europe yet. So he's probably not going to do it. But again, this always risks such a big escalation, especially because Russia perceives that the U.S. and NATO are enabling these attacks. So they, you know, from their point of view, they have the justification, the pretext if they wanted to launch some kind of attack on NATO. Um, so we're just, you know, counting on the Russians not to do that. Based, that's the Biden administration strategy here. All right, the next one: a Russian nuclear official says that Ukraine is planning an attack on a nuclear plant. So, an advisor to the director of Russia's Rosneft Gotam nuclear power engineering company claimed on Tuesday that Ukraine is planning an imminent attack on the Zaporozhye nuclear power plant 
while Ukraine is also accusing Russian forces of plotting to blow up the facility. So definitely concerning. Um, Ukraine has been claiming Russia was going to attack this, uh, blow up this nuclear power plant for a while. And now you have somebody on the Russian side saying that the Ukrainians are planning something. So this is the ZNPP. Uh, it's in Ukraine's Zaporozhia Ob Oblast. And it has been controlled by Russian forces since March 2022. There's been a lot of fighting around the plant. It's on the uh, south bank of the Dnieper River or the east bank, depending on how you're looking at it. Um, and, you know, on that side of the river, it's Russian-controlled territory. On the other side, it's Ukrainian-controlled. Ukraine launched failed attacks last fall to retake the plant while they were accusing Russia of shelling the plant that Russia controls. So it was basically it was pretty clear that Ukraine was attacking the plant but they were blaming that on Russia. So that's important context to keep in mind when you see Ukraine making these claims. And now we have, uh, again, someone on the Russian side making these claims. Uh, this guy is named Renat Karsha. He claimed that Ukraine was planning to use a dirty bomb against the Zaporozhia nuclear power plant, which is the largest nuclear power plant in Europe. So, you know, an attack on this plant could be pretty devastating. So he said, quote, in the nighttime on July 5th, Ukrainian troops will try to attack the Zaporozhia nuclear power plant with the use of high precision, long range weapons and kamikaze drones. They plan to airdrop bombs stuffed with radioactive waste that were removed from the South Ukraine nuclear power plant to a military airfield in Ukraine. The standby bombing, bombing plan provides for the use of Tachka U high precision rockets with a warhead stuffed with radioactive waste end quote. So a pretty specific thing there coming from this Russian nuclear uh, official. And also on Tuesday, Zelensky claimed that Russian forces planted explosives at the Zaporozhia nuclear power plant. Zelensky said in his nightly address, quote, now we have information from our intelligence that the Russian troops have placed objects resembling explosives on the roof of several power units of the Zaporozhia nuclear power plant, end quote. So the general staff of the, of the armed forces of Ukraine said in a statement on Facebook that an attack could happen in the near future, and they claimed that Russia would make it look like Ukrainian shelling. So Ukrainian officials made similar claims about explosives being planted at the Zaporozhia nuclear power plant in recent weeks, but the International Atomic Energy Agency said that its experts found no devices the IAEA said on Friday, quote, IAEA experts have so far found no visible indications of mines or other explosives currently planted at Ukraine's Zaporozhia nuclear power plant, end quote. And they added that the inspectors still needed additional access um, to, to look at other sites. So another thing to keep in mind here, as Ukraine was, you know, accusing Russia of plotting to blow up this, this nuclear power plant, Lindsey Graham and Richard Blumenthal introduced legislation in the Senate that would declare Article 5 of the NATO Treaty, which outlines mutual defense, would be triggered if Russia destroyed a nuclear facility and radioactive contaminants dispersed into NATO territory. And we know from the way, you know, the media and Congress reacted to, you know, Nord Stream, the Kakovka Dam, which we don't really know what happened in that situation. We don't really know what happened with Nord Stream either, but we do know with Nord Stream, it definitely wasn't Russia. That's pretty clear. And, you know, Western governments have admitted that now. But we know the reaction. If this happens, it's going to be a disaster. I mean, who knows exactly? I'm not sure what 
would happen if this nuclear power plant was blown up. Um, you know, how big of a, of a radiation zone there would be. Um, but if it does happen, we know that, you know, the media in the U.S. and these hawkish members of Congress are immediately going to blame Russia and there's going to be a frenzy to possibly do something. So it's definitely very uh, concerning, this whole story. Uh, all right, the next one here, NATO to extend Secretary General Stoltenberg's term by one year. So NATO on Tuesday agreed to extend Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg's term by another year as the alliance wants to stick with a familiar leader amid its raging proxy war against Russia and Ukraine. So Stoltenberg is a Norwegian politician. He's a former prime minister of Norway. He's led NATO since 2014, which was a very pivotal year. And, you know, he's overseen a period of increasing tensions with Russia that led to the most dangerous security situation in Europe since World War II. President Biden said in a statement on Stoltenberg's extension, quote, with his steady leadership experience and judgment, Secretary General Stoltenberg has brought our alliance through the most significant challenges in Europe and European security since World War II. I look forward to continuing to work with Stoltenberg to further strengthen the alliance next week at the NATO summit in Vilnius, end quote. So that's already next week. That summit uh, is coming up. Um, so Ukraine also welcomed the news of Stoltenberg leading the alliance for another year. And again, he came in in 2014, and 2014 was the year in February of that year that Viktor Yanukovych, the former Ukrainian president was ousted in a U.S. backed coup. And it was after that, you know, that sparked Russia taking Crimea, the Donbass and the civil war. NATO started training, you know, training, sent troops into Ukraine to train troops and the support for Ukraine, U S and NATO support was slowly escalating from 2014 until the invasion. And of course, in the invasion, it went to a whole new level as Ukraine is now armed with tens of billions of dollars, in NATO equipment, getting trained in Germany and across in other places in Europe and in the U.S., they're, they're doing training. So this is all on Stoltenberg's watch um, and they want to keep, you know, keep them around. All right. The next one here is Israeli forces reportedly withdraw from Janine. So this is from Mondo Weiss and it's an update on the Israeli attack on the West Bank city of Jenin. Um, sorry, it's Janine. I always pronounce it wrong. Uh, so the Israeli military, the Israeli army with, with reportedly withdrew from the city as Palestinian resistance claims victory. And an Israeli soldier was killed during the fighting. So at around 1250 local time early on Wednesday, the Israeli army officially confirmed that an Israeli soldier or non-commissioned officer was killed during the fighting in Jenin as the Israeli army reportedly began its withdrawal from the Jenin refugee camp. The soldier was a member of the elite Agaz Commando Unit, which specializes in guerrilla warfare, and its members received training in the Golani Brigade. So early reports claiming that the army was withdrawing late on Tuesday were initially met with skepticism as various social media channels spread around warnings not to believe the news of the withdrawal. But several of these sources also emphasize the need to exercise caution. So it's not clear, but there are reports that they've been pulling out. Oh, now this is saying that by early Wednesday morning, the Al-Quds Brigade, the Jenin Brigade official telegram channels released a statement claiming victory. So the Palestinian resistance groups, the armed resistance groups in the city are claiming that they, uh, you know, 
drove out the Israeli forces. The statement held the bravery, the bravery of the resistance fighters and the people of the camp who were, uh, you know, helping and fighting or sorry, not people that were fighting, uh, also uh, medical personnel and journalists that were there. Um, so there were renewed airstrikes on Tuesday, you know, all day there was fighting going on and the Palestinian death toll rose to 12. I'm not sure how many of that are fighters and how many are civilians. Uh, I think that will become more clear in the coming days. Uh, but the next one here, kind of similar to the thing I wrote yesterday about how the U S is backing, you know, this Israeli raid on this West bank city. This is from Middle East Eye, and it says that the U.S. response to the West Bank assault underlines Israel's free hand. And it's basically saying, you know, because the U.S. came out, you know, when asked about this raid on this city, the U.S. said that they support Israel's right to defend itself, basically saying we support, you know, what Israel's doing. And this article saying there's no red lines. Biden has given this Netanyahu government a free hand to basically do whatever they want in the West Bank. There's not going to be any repercussions. You know, the U.S. gives Israel $3.8 billion in military aid each year. That's not threatened. Don't worry about it. Um, it doesn't really matter what you're doing in the West Bank or Gaza. The judicial overhaul, they're not as happy about. But again, they're not really threatening any repercussions for Israel. Um, you know, when it comes to the aid, I mean, that's the thing. If the U.S. had a problem with what Israel was doing, you know, leverage, they could leverage some of that aid. But that's never uh, a discussion. Um, so yeah, that's what this article is about. And again, this is a huge raid with, you know, drones, uh, drone strikes, Apache helicopter strikes, uh, thousands of troops, hundreds of armored vehicles. Um, you know, the biggest attack of its kind on the city since 2002. All right. So the next one here, Taiwan hosts another congressional delegation. So on Tuesday, Taiwanese President Tsai Ing-wen hosted a U.S. congressional delegation led by Representative Kevin Hearn. He's a Republican from Oklahoma. And this was the second time within a week that a group of U.S. lawmakers visited the island. Hearn is the head of the Republican Study Committee and expressed support for Taiwanese independence during a meeting with Tsai. While it operates as a de facto independent state, Taiwan has never formally declared independence from the mainland as the issue is a major red line for Beijing. So this is kind of a very confusing issue. And, uh, you know, it's easy to trip yourself up on it. But basically, you know, Taiwan hasn't formally declared independence, but the president sides her party, the Democratic Progressive Party, you know, they're pro-independence. But she's said that there's no need to declare independence because we're already independent. Um, but that's still not, you know, a formal declaration. And it's long been believed that a formal declaration would trigger Chinese military action. And in recent years, Chinese officials have been warning the U.S. as the U.S. has been increasing support for Taiwan, that any attempt to make Taiwan independent from China would mean war. They've warned explicitly, you know, if the U.S. takes things too far when it comes to supporting what they call independence forces in Taiwan, it's going to lead to war between the U.S. and China. Um, so this guy, Hearn, who's a, again, Republican from Oklahoma, while he was there, he you know, expressed support for independence. So again, just a sensitive issue. He said, quote, support for Taiwan as an independent and sovereign nation has been one of the founding principles of the RSC and has remained a top priority for 50 years. What an honor it would be to one day soon see Taiwan experience the same independence that our original 
13 colonies enjoyed in the early days, end quote. So Tsai thanked the delegation for congressional support for Taiwan's military capabilities. She said, quote, for many years, the U.S. Congress has promoted numerous bills that support Taiwan's efforts to upgrade its self-defense capabilities. On behalf of the people of Taiwan, I express sincere gratitude to the U.S. Congress and government's for their backing, end quote. So this was just within a week, uh, second congressional delegation last week, Representative Mike Rogers, who's a Republican chair of the House Armed Services Committee, he led a big delegation. And these visits anger China. They're against any official contacts between U.S. and Taiwanese government officials. And that's been demonstrated by their reactions to, you know, Nancy Pelosi going there and Kevin McCarthy meeting with Tsai in the U.S., both provoked huge military exercises, and this stuff is putting Taiwan under more military pressure. And then, in response to that, these hawks in Congress say, "Oh, this means we got to keep, you know, send more weapons to Taiwan, go over there more." You know, that's they're you know creating the crisis to respond to. Uh, all right. So the next one here, the U.S. looks to restrict Chinese firms' access to cloud technology. So this is kind of the economic front of the U.S.-China tensions, which I haven't been covering as much as I would like lately, just because there's so much going on with Ukraine. But it is pretty important. And the latest thing here, the Wall Street Journal reported on Tuesday that the U.S. is looking to restrict Chinese companies' access to cloud computing technology in a move that would further strain ties between Washington and Beijing. So the Biden administration has significantly escalated the trade war with China. The, all the tariffs, Trump era tariffs are still in place, and they've imposed sanctions uh, to restrict the export of advanced semiconductors and semiconductor manufacturing equipment to China. And those sanctions were imposed last fall. The U.S. has also pressured other countries that export to export the technology to impose similar measures, and that's Japan and the Netherlands, and they're, they're going along with it now. And the Wall Street Journal report said that the new rule would require U.S. cloud companies to seek permission before providing cloud computing services that use advanced artificial intelligence chips to Chinese customers. The idea is to prevent companies in China from gaining access to computing capabilities via cloud services that use the advanced chips that the U.S. Uh, is trying to restrict going to China. So it's the semiconductors that they're banning being sold to China that are used for these cloud uh, capabilities. So they don't want China having access to that. And of course, this is all in the name of national security. That's how they justify anything like this. The report comes as U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen is preparing to visit China where she's expected to arrive Thursday. So this report that, you know, I think the Wall Street Journal just tends to come out with reports that could, you know, uh, offset diplomatic steps that the, the Biden administration is taking with China. But according to the New York Times, Treasury officials are downplaying expectations for Yellen's visit, saying that there won't be any major breakthroughs and that the purpose of the visit is to improve communication. Similar to what the State Department said before Blinken went there, they said, you know, we're not, no breakthroughs. This is managing competition, managing competition. That's the line. And the plans for the cloud restrictions demonstrate that economic tensions between the two powers will not ease anytime soon. The Biden administration is also working to, uh, they're working on a mechanism. They want to make a mechanism to screen U.S. investments in China, but th that's facing pushback on Wall Street and uh, from some members of Congress, at least. That would be 
pretty big uh, use of executive power to, you know, ban or require certain things for companies investing in China. China has taken measures in response to the U.S. semiconductor sanctions. Most recently, Beijing announced on Monday that it would restrict the export of two metals that are crucial for making semiconductors, gallium and germanium. So experts told the South China Morning Post that the new restrictions are meant as a counter to the U.S. semiconductor sanctions. Obviously, they're a response. And they could also be used as a bargaining chip in negotiations with the U.S., all right, the next one here, Mike Pence backs regime change in Iran at MEK rally. So this article is from Connor Freeman at the Libertarian Institute, and it is about the MEK. So for those not familiar with the MEK, they are in a group of exiled Iranians. It's an exiled Iranian cult that's based in Albania that pay very handsomely for former U.S. officials to speak at their events and call for regime change in Iran, and a lot of them are happy to do it. So former Vice President Mike Pence participated in a rally outside of Paris led by the exiled Iranian terrorist cult, the Marxist-Islamist Mujahideen-e-Kalk, headed by Mariam Rajavi, and it's M-E-K for short. And their political front is known as the National Council of Resistance of Iran. So Pence is a current GOP presidential hopeful, along with a host of other prominent hawks, including British ex-Prime Minister Liz Truss. She was the shortest, uh, you know, Prime Minister in British history. She didn't last very long, but she was there. Mike Pompeo was there, and they made calls for regime change in Tehran and rail against engagement with Iran. Pence said, quote, one of the biggest lies the ruling regime has sold to the world is that there is no alternative. End quote. So I guess he's saying the MEK is the alternative. Um, Joe Lieberman was also there, former U.S. Senator. Um, so these events, I mean, it just goes to show that would, these people will do anything for money. I mean, there's no way they can take this group seriously. They've been involved in assassinations uh, inside Iran, uh, collaborated with Israel in killing Iranian scientists and all sorts of other things. They were based in Iraq for a while. Uh, but were kicked out of there after the U.S. invasion, and now they're in Albania. And, uh, you know, they've been trained and armed and funded by Mossad, Israel's intelligence, and, you know, they're just, a, you know, not a good group. They also have, you know, troll farms. If you're ever on Twitter and you start, you know, talking smack about the MEK, I forget, I'm not sure what the keywords are to activate the trolls, but they'll show up. <laughs> Um, so it's just so odd, these, these events. Um, but Con uh, Connor mentions at the end, end of the article that the group's headquarters were just raided in Albania uh, for because they were carrying out unsanctioned activity in contra you know, that goes against a U.S. mediated deal that allows them to you know, have this compound in Albania. The agreement had allowed the MEK to re relocate to Albania as they were no longer welcome in Iraq once Hussein was removed from power after the U.S. invasion. And the cult was using their presence in Albania to conduct cyber attacks and other political activities, and who knows what else is they're, they're really doing. Um, so again, just such a strange group, and you see these U.S. officials. I know Rudy Giuliani is another big fan of them. Um, you know, and John Bolton, he goes a lot, and they pay tens of thousands of dollars for the, their speeches. All right, uh, the last one here, the Biden administration trampled on free speech on social media. 
This article is actually from the Wall Street Journal. It's about a court ruling. A federal judge ruled that the Biden administration likely trampled on the First Amendment in trying to eliminate what it saw as disinformation on social media, issuing a broad preliminary injunction limiting the federal government from policing online content. In a 155-page ruling issued Tuesday, U.S. District Judge Terry, Terry Dowdy of Louisiana barred White House officials and multiple federal agencies from contacting social media companies with the purpose of suppressing political views and other speech normally protected from government censorship. The judge's injunction came in a lawsuit led by Republican attorney, attorneys general of Missouri and Louisiana who alleged that the Biden administration fostered a sprawling federal censorship enterprise. The federal government pressured social media platforms to scrub away disfavored views about COVID, the origins of, of the pandemic, the Hunter Biden laptop story, election security, and other sensitive topics. The case is among the most potentially consequential First Amendment battles pending in the courts, testing the limits of government scrutiny of social media content. Uh, so it's definitely a good decision, you know, for freedom, uh, for the First Amendment, you know, when it comes to the social media. Um, so I figured that was worth uh, highlighting today. Uh, but that is it for the news for today. Go check out our viewpoints. One from Patrick Lawrence, Daniel Ellsberg, and the process of my awakening. That's over at Shearpost. One from Branko, March Teach, the United States wants to poison Ukraine to save it. That's over at Jacobin about depleted uranium. One from Yumna Patel, Israeli plan to defy Al-Aqsa Mosque is a profound threat to the Jerusalem status quo. That's over at Mondo Weiss. One from Daniel Larison, Nikki Haley turns hawkish takes on China up to 11. That's over at Responsible Statecraft. And our spotlight is from Bryce Green at Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting, how the military-industrial complex sets the narrative on Ukraine. Uh, but that's everything for today. I uh, hope everybody had a good 4th of July. You know, if you had the day off or whatever, you know, just hope you had a good day. Um, you could always support us at antiwar.com slash donate. Like and subscribe on YouTube, Odyssey, or Rumble. Share the show. If you listen to the audio version on the podcast apps, you can leave reviews there. Tell your friends about antiwar.com. I'll be back tomorrow. Thanks for listening. <laughs>